Hi, I'm Kenneth, and this is the Unspeakable Vice podcast, where we talk about talking about sex. Sex is a dirty word, a taboo. It's something that just isn't talked about, and we're going to dig into why. Before I get into this episode, I want to acknowledge the recent death of a friend and inspiration, Jim Toy. Uh, those of you who are particularly perceptive may have noticed that I have a, uh, I have a photograph of Jim here on my desk whenever I do the podcast. Um, I met him in person only once, but uh, we corresponded over a number of years while I was incarcerated. And... Um, uh, he, he recognized the injustice and prejudice uh, in my prosecution, and he supported and encouraged my hopes to shed light on uh, these issues of oppression and stigma, uh, much as he did himself throughout his career. Um, I keep this photo on my desk just as a reminder uh, that the work I've taken up has been going on for generations now, um, and uh, it's not likely to be completed anytime soon. Um, Sexual stigma has been a part of our culture for centuries, and uh, uh, it's because of the enduring love and kindness of people like Jim Toy that we can hope to find peace and understanding with our sexual selves. Um, in the last episode, I spoke with T.J. Kineski. As promised, the interview was not explicitly about sex. In fact, uh, it was hardly about sex at all. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't relevant to the discussion we've been having on this podcast. At the beginning of that interview, I uh, encouraged you to listen to the ways that sex and gender, uh, masculinity, norms, uh, influence identity, even when it's not explicit. Uh, today, I want to be a little more explicit about these processes and explore how they operate more generally. So TJ self-identifies as a, a YouTuber, a gamer, an actor, an athlete, and he's also seen himself as part of uh, various other identities or identity communities, including brony, bisexual, influencer, and autistic. And each of these identities, with their accompanying norms and influences, potentially has an effect on TJ's self-image and self-esteem. Now, from the first time I saw TJ, uh, I saw him with sympathy and, and what felt to me like relatability. I imagined that he was like me in many ways. Um, I saw a talented but awkward adolescent, uh, quite likely misunderstood, possibly resigned to never being understood. It all felt very familiar. He was, I, I assumed, uh, publicly embarrassed uh, at that point when an announcer misread his name, um, I knew what that felt like, and his reaction to ignore it, because what else could you do, uh, seemed like exactly the same reaction I would have had. So as I think about who TJ is and what it might have been like to grow up in his shoes, I also think about my own adolescence and my own thoughts about identity and how I fit into the world. So, TJ, you'll forgive me if I get it wrong, if I assume something about you that isn't true, uh, but maybe uh, when I do that, I might be thinking about myself. So, uh, last time I, when I invited uh, TJ to speak about who he is, uh, about how he identifies and what, he's, what struggles he's faced, uh, he answered my questions honestly, I assume, but sometimes superficially. 
TJ is, in my estimation, endeavoring toward what the cute husband and remarkable writer Phil Chrisman describes as the joys of being intimate, being intense, without having to be known. Uh, TJ wants to be fully engaged with life and without the vulnerability that comes from acknowledging the full complexity of the past and of uncertainty. We all do this to some extent. All, all of us want to be loved, to feel connection, uh, but we also want to hold back to keep part of us a secret. Because we believe that part of us might be rejected, might be criticized, scorned, judged, disliked. These contradictory desires might be strongest when we are at an age that requires us to be mature, responsible, and entirely put together, but while we still lack the experience and wisdom to have a clue. And, quite likely, these contradictory desires might be strongest when it comes to sex. A number of TJ's identities align with stereotypical masculine activities. Athletics are often considered masculine, uh, especially competitive athletics. Um, and his chosen athletic competitions, well, they're not exclusively male-oriented. In fact, both American Ninja Warrior and the World Sports Stacking Association are probably more inclusive than most athletic organizations. Uh, still, a clear majority of the competitors are male. Uh, in just about any activity, masculine normativity will urge male-identifying individuals to compete and win, whether it's a sport or not, whether competition is the explicit goal or not. And, not surprisingly, TJ had goals for 2022 related to his winningness. He wants to make the cut into American Ninja Warrior competition this year, and he wants to become the fastest stacker in Ohio. Of course he does. Who wouldn't want to be a winner? But the question regarding sexuality is what this pressure does to an individual's identity. If TJ doesn't make the cut, does that mean that as a man he's a failure? Not necessarily, but of course it's much easier to be a man if you're a winner. Men who are losers might be required to justify their lack of winning uh, in order to explain why it doesn't make them less of a man. After all, men play to win. I wasn't a big athlete at any point in my life, but I remember often thinking that whatever I did, I ought to do it well. This desire went beyond official competitions where there was a clear winner or loser. It also included any sort of activity uh, where there was a judgment of competence or quality. In short, I often chose not to engage in an activity if I thought I might lose. Wanting to be good at things is not necessarily, not, not essentially a masculine characteristic, but comparing oneself to others is, and so is approaching everything with a competitive spirit. When TJ competes, part of his masculinity, part of his identity is on the line. And perhaps even the choice to compete is in itself an expression of his masculinity. In the end, he might feel pressure to either win or quit. This time, I was said to myself, if I'm going to do this all over again, this time, I'm going to do it better. However, if I mess up that comeback one last time, and if I stay on that loser side, if I mess up one more time, 
then I'm done. In our modern progressive society, there's not much that a man or a woman simply can't do. Women are mostly allowed to participate in sports in more or less the same way as men. Men are allowed to do things that have been traditionally women's roles. Uh, guys are allowed to be stay-at-home dads. Guys can even crochet. But that doesn't mean it's always easy for them to do so. Just as it's not easy for a woman to compete in sports, necessarily, for numerous reasons, men who choose certain activities may experience friction, stigma, or at least raised eyebrows. I wondered with TJ about this in the context of his identification with the brony fandom or with furry communities. Uh, guys who like pony toys or cartoons are unusual enough for them to have their own category of fandom, separate from the more normal uh, girls who are interested in these characters. Indeed, yeah, these characters are recognizable by their the pastel hues, glitter, rainbow motifs, signals which are decidedly not masculine. Further, there's uh, a notable overlap between bronies and furries, the latter of which is stereotypically associated with anti-heteronormative sex. To make matters worse for TJ, he's also known to enjoy playing with plush toys, a hobby which has endeared him the pejorative man-child. When I asked TJ about this part of his life, his answers left me wondering. Maybe he was being engaging without being transparent, or maybe what Maybe I'm just not as good of an interviewer as I'd like to be. Uh, but either way, TJ's responses seemed unfulfilling to me, leaving the questions answered but not satisfied. I asked him specifically about the sexualization of those in the furry community. He answered, it's not all about that. Well, fair, of course it's not all about that, but... TJ skillfully sidestepped any discussion of the part of the community that is about sex. Could you blame him? Not at all. I'm sure I've done the very same thing many times in the context of my own identity communities. Because sex is taboo, it's common to avoid any mention of sex within the context of other parts of our lives. It's as if we desexualize our lives in order to make them acceptable in polite society. To prove the point, look at the more successful messaging in the gay rights movement. It whitewashed over what makes gay, sense, gay sex deviant, that is, the sex, and instead it focused on all the ways that individuals in gay communities are just like anyone else. Deflection is a, a common component of social acceptance. In order to keep your membership in an identity community secure, you may find yourself downplaying the differences and accentuating the normative aspects of yourself. In this view, it's not all about that is probably the most appropriate response. There's a word uh, the kids like to use these days, sus, short for suspicious. Sus calls attention to any behavior or characteristic that is non-normative. Most often it's used when someone who claims to be an average guy that's to say a cis male heterosexual, does or says something that might lead to questions about his normative status. For example, if TJ is around the bros and someone raises the point that TJ likes ponies, another bro might turn to TJ and say, bro, that's kind of sus.
a common theme in masculine culture in general is for men to challenge each other's masculinity. Sus perfectly embodies this challenge. When a man is accused of being sus, he must either defend himself or deflect the accusation by quickly moving the conversation to another point of focus. And moving to another aspect of TJ's identity that might be a threat to his masculinity is his bisexuality. Again, in our modern era, the issue might be of minimal importance. But being bisexual is still a deviation from the cishet male ideal standard. The mere fact that TJ had to come out is evidence that it still might be an issue. We're trained in this generation to tolerate differences in sexualities. We're told that sexual orientation doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Gay, straight, bi, it's a, a matter of personal identity, not a basis for judgment or discrimination. So the polite thing to do might be to ignore someone's sexuality or to act as if it doesn't matter because it's not supposed to matter. But, of course, it does matter. TJ felt compelled to come out to let the world know what he had previously kept to himself. And I, I love that he has the freedom to do that. It's wonderful that we are in a world at a time when people are allowed to be different and to acknowledge even and, and even express those differences. But even though we sometimes say we celebrate differences, those differences are still notable. People come out for a reason, and it's not because they want to celebrate. It's because something was hidden inside them, even suppressed. And why was it hidden? Because it felt wrong. It felt unacceptable, maybe deviant, because it was a threat to their identity. Coming out is an attempt to shift shame into pride, to embrace a new identity that's more genuine. I can only guess what TJ was expecting when he came out. Did he expect to lose friends, gain friends, find support from a, a new community? In a different time and place, when I came out, I was prepared to get kicked out of my house. It didn't happen. I did, however, lose a girlfriend, but can you blame her? Um, but TJ was met with very little. He wasn't roundly rejected, nor was he overwhelmingly celebrated. His coming out was a non-event. Some would say that's as it should be, but was it what he expected? Was it what he needed? If someone is, is feeling shame, maybe feeling like an outsider, they might come out in order to justify what they're feeling. They might, they might look for affirmation that they are shameful. Or if they are optimistic, they might hope someone will prove them wrong. In any case, the intensity of the response might be expected to match the intensity of emotion the person is feeling inside themselves. On the other hand, maybe the anticlimactic response could serve to calm the anxiety within. I suppose it depends. If the response demonstrates to the individual that their different sexuality is no big deal, that could be helpful. But if the response is interpreted as a lack of caring or, or worse, a distancing, then the individual could be left no better off than before. TJ didn't intimate that he was very anxious or ashamed before coming out as bisexual. I, I hope he wasn't, but 
his words did suggest an awareness of the potential social ramifications of admitting to something as sus as an attraction to guys. If you listen to his explanation, he was almost apologetic at first. And then he followed up with a reaffirmation of his masculinity by focusing on his affection for his woman friend. Now, I'm sure that as TJ has time and more experience to move into his new identity, he'll become less apologetic and more direct with his explanations. But for now, his words thread a needle that, that speaks to the precariousness of masculinity and of identity in general, at least when it comes to sex. Uh, one last point of identity that I, that I want to mention that relates to TJ. He said he has autism. Now, this is not my area of expertise, so I'm probably going to get some stuff wrong, but hopefully I can find an expert in a future episode who can come help go into some more accurate detail with me. But autism, like any disability, can come with stigma, and this stigma can attach uh, in a particularly troubling way in the area of sexuality. Before I go on, let me say that, at, just as an aside, uh, many people would argue that autism is not a disability. In fact, I would be one of those people. I'm not using the term disability to imply that there's something wrong with a person or that they are less capable because of an autism diagnosis. Uh, I'm only using the term because it's used by clinicians. And also, I'm interested in disability as a social category. When someone is diagnosed with anything, whether it's autism or cerebral palsy or cancer, there are social consequences. Being sexual is complicated social business. In order to do it successfully and normally, one must learn a, a complex array of unspoken social rules about normalcy, appropriateness, desire, and consent. And, and these rules may change as fast as they're learned. And they may vary completely depending on the social context. Sexuality is confusing enough for people who are considered normal. It's even worse for people with a disability. And to be clear, autism is a social disability. It makes it more difficult for someone to understand and interact with social and emotional skill. Beyond difficulty for the individual understanding how to be sexual, social stigma makes it harder for normal people to understand the sexuality of someone with a disability. If there's a, a perception that a disability makes someone less able, the first ability to go is often their sexuality. Let me say that more clearly. If, if someone has a disability, they are often presumed to be incapable of sexuality. This is particularly true for the so-called uh, developmental disabilities, which are indicated by diminished mental function and sometimes explicitly a lack of ability to make decisions. And this stigma is not just a social misunderstanding. It also manifests in law where those with developmental disabilities may be denied the legal right to consent to sexual behavior. And consequently, those who may be their sexual partners may be at risk of being prosecuted as sex offenders or sexual predators and further stigmatized accordingly. As you can imagine, any one of these identities can result in shame, stigma, or even exclusion from normative social life. In our modern, progressive culture, overt stigma may be minimal, but 
when multiple non-normative identities intersect, it can become increasingly difficult to navigate a path to acceptance. Furthermore, even minor stigma can compound over time and lead to greater challenges for the individual, deeping, uh, depending on coping strategies and support structures. So in this analysis, my, my working hypothesis is that minority identity stigma is strongest in the context of sexuality. Whether the minority identity is explicitly sexual or not, it probably complicates sexual identity just the same. Thanks for listening.